Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode of Every Town is being sponsored by our good friends over at the Deadbolt Mystery Society who have an amazing monthly subscription box service that if you guys are fans of true crime and unsolved mysteries, you need to check out. I'm a huge fan of the Deadbolt Mystery Society, so I couldn't be happier to have them as our sponsor. Their boxes will have you playing the role of detective as you track down missing persons, crack the case on an unidentified body, or are hunting down a serial killer before it's too late. Right now, I'm knee-deep in solving their box simply titled Duel, This one has me tracking down a sinister group that calls themselves the Scourge, who are planning on having two of their members partake in a twisted contest that has them murdering six people. Inside the box are all sorts of clues and pieces of evidence, and one of the best things about these boxes are the QR codes you scan that show you additional videos, audio recordings, evidence, and photos. The reviews are in from people all around the world, and the Deadbolt Mystery Society has 4.9 out of 5 stars, according to over 260 independent reviews. 
Right now, they're offering 20% off your order when you use the code DEADBOLT20. So go to DeadboltMysterySociety.com and use the code DEADBOLT20 to get 20% off and become part of the Deadbolt Mystery Society today. Every town has a dark side. In this episode, we head to Springerville, Arizona, where we check out the shocking confessions of serial killer William Inman. History has inspired mankind that, if you put your mind to it, you can achieve a lot of things. Young age has not hindered a lot of people from achieving great success either. Alexander the Great started conquering countries at just 18 years old, Mary Shelley got her classic novel Frankenstein published when she was just 20 years old. And Mark Zuckerberg launched Facebook at the age of 19 in 2004, while David Karp introduced Tumblr when he was only 21. But one is never too young as well to be considered a nuisance to society, and worst, be named as one of the youngest serial killers in America's history at 21 years old. Such was the unfortunate destiny of Arizona native William Inman, who in 2009 confessed to murdering three people in the span of three years. I'm Andrew, and this is Everytown. Who would have thought that the small town of Springerville, Arizona, with a population just close to 2,000, is home to a young triple murderer? William Inman is definitely loathsome for his vigilante-style killing spree. But if there's a little redeeming value about him, it's his honesty and audacity to take responsibility for his crimes. In today's episode, I'll take you back more than a decade to when William attempted to divert attention from his most recent murder and it opened up a can of worms. It divulged his other deep, dark secrets, not by accident, nor by brutal force of authorities, but by his own bold admission. How did he rationalize the murders he committed at a young age, and why did he finally come clean and face the consequences? We often hear from psychologists and family counselors that one of the most important things adults can do for young children is to model the kind of person they would like them to be. But when a child grows up with nary a shadow of his parents by his side, what would that make of him? We can perhaps find the answer from the kind of childhood William had and from how he came out to be as a young adult. Although there aren't too many specific details that are known about William's formative years, the few general pieces of information available will give us a glimpse into his early life. He was born in 1988 in the southern part of Phoenix, Arizona, and William never had a taste of what a complete family was like because his parents were regularly embroiled in law or drug abuse problems as he was growing up in the town of Springerville in Apache County. He was often left with their pet dog that kept him company, 
and became the closest thing to having a family for William. Mostly left to tend for himself, he learned to survive by working at a general store near the edge of town, clad in his khaki-colored clothes. Other times, locals remembered William hanging around a tire shop and talking about his fascination with guns in the military. His mother, Diana, had fond memories of her son putting a crown on her head and singing to her during special occasions. The mother and son even formed what they called their Silly Willy Club. Perhaps those were the happy days when Diana and her husband valued clean living and feared the law, but when William's parents were overpowered by their own demons, the constant absence of Diana and her husband as they faced the consequences left their son at a loss. Just imagine the plethora of negative emotions William had to contend with as a kid turning into an adolescent up until becoming a young adult. And during those times when a parental figure and guidance were lacking in his life, who were the models he looked up to that influenced his actions and decisions? Whatever they were, He ended up becoming a serial killer starting at 18 years old while other young people his age were living in normalcy and were just starting to build on their dreams. While they did that, William only had one motive. He wanted to rid society of less than desirable people who did not live up to his standards, which is what he told the authorities during his captivity. In April of 2007, he committed his first murder when he fatally shot 72-year-old William McGarriger, a.k.a. Stoney, whom William accused of molesting him. Stoney, a former Litchfield, Arizona resident, was active in the Boy Scouts organization under three different names and was accused of child molestation. When he was 26 years old, He volunteered as a scuba diver instructor with the Boy Scouts in Miami Beach, Florida, after relocating there from Pauling, New York in 1960. He used the alias William F. Stone or Stoney. In January of 1962, he turned up in Nashua, New Hampshire, where authorities arrested him on three counts of an unnatural and lascivious act and one count of possession of obscene photographs. Standing at 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighing 165 pounds, Stoney could easily get away with sexually harassing innocent kids and adolescents. A devout Catholic, he was clutching a Bible as he pleaded guilty of the illegal conduct charges involving two teenage boys ages 15 and 16. He was sentenced to five years of probation for risk of injury to a minor but he was able to elude a four-year jail term through Litchfield Superior Court, and part of his court-issued probation included psychiatric help. On December 8, 1964, Stoney's involvement with the Boy Scouts organization ended. A clean slate for the convicted pedophile meant moving to another place, and so Stoney moved across the country and settled along the eastern border of Arizona, near St. John's, where he purchased a small rural ranch.
In order to maintain that property, he hired young men to help him out to do the odd jobs, and one of them was William Inman. But old habits don't die easily. In April of 2007, while William was working on the property, the 72-year-old ranch owner inappropriately touched him, and William felt violated. Later that day, another person from St. John's shared his similar experience with Stoney to William. Enraged, William returned to the ranch at around midnight, cut holes in the window screens, and then shot the old man 12 times with a 22 caliber rifle while he was in bed. Stoney was hit six or seven times, but left him dead on the spot. The elderly man was known to carry large amounts of cash amounting to thousands of dollars within his house, so it was no surprise that his house was ransacked afterwards. Stoney's untimely demise shocked his family, particularly his daughter-in-law, Tiffany Stone, who couldn't believe William's sexual assault allegation against the former Boy Scouts leader. Tiffany described Stoney as a gritty, crass old man who had a big heart that a lot of people never saw. He would give you the shirt off his back if you needed it. William, however, believed that Stoney, who made a pass at him, was a less than desirable person that society didn't need. A St. John's resident had noticed that everything was quiet over at the ranch owner's house, and so he went to check it out. He said... Stoney was lying in his bed, and except for a little blood by his ear, there was nothing to indicate he had been killed. He then notified the police, and it was only after Stoney's property was sealed off that they realized the old man had been murdered. 18-year-old William was considered a potential suspect, as well as the other ranch workers. In a 2007 interview, William denied shooting Stoney at the time and told authorities the whole town is suspect because a lot of people did not care for Stoney. William was never charged, thus his first heinous crime became his first biggest secret. But his vengeful killing spree didn't end there. Around two years later, Inman, who was then 21 years old, took the lives of two people whom he also deemed as undesirable individuals living in his community. Thus, they appealed to his killer instincts and became his successive victims. In March of 2009, William had an encounter with Daniel Acton, a 60-year-old Vietnam War veteran and retired Marine who was also known as Humming Dan, because he was constantly humming, and at the same time couldn't hear well. Local residents described Acton as a great guy who looked a little like Santa Claus. He lived close to William, and the two often had disputes over seemingly mundane things like property boundaries, trash burning, and pets. It culminated when William accused Acton of killing his dog, which had become his longtime companion in the absence of his wayward parents. But when he confronted Acton about it, the war veteran denied having a hand in the dog's death. This infuriated William, 
who then chased Acton in his home and shot him multiple times using a 22 caliber rifle. Acton was likewise a drug user who mistreated people, according to William, who thought it was his responsibility to kill him in order to protect society. The criminal burned his second victim before burying him. Acton's remains were discovered in a shallow grave on his property outside St. John's and was sent to a medical examiner in Tucson. For the second time around, William got off scot-free and added another story in his secret files of sordid crimes. Incidentally, William's first two victims were connected. A few years back, Stoney had sold some land to Acton, showing just how small this town was, but at the time, I'm sure it never occurred in their minds that they would fall victim to a young man's killing spree. It didn't take long for William to perpetrate another homicide, and his third victim was his friend, a 16-year-old boy still from St. John's, Arizona. On August 13, 2009, William picked up Ricky Flores from the teenage boy's house. They argued about Flores's drug use, and William wanted Flores to end his addiction and change his life altogether. The young killer then drove Flores to the Elk Valley Ranches area, a rural property on the outskirts of St. John's, where William chased down the boy and fired a single shot into Flores's left ear with a 12-gauge shotgun. The dead body of Flores was then taken and buried in a remote forest in northern Greenlee County, about 125 miles from St. John's. On August 14th, Flores was considered a missing person after his mother reported him missing. Mrs. Flores told authorities that her son had left home without telling her of his plans and did not pack up any clothes or a cell phone charger. She did mention that she saw a gun strapped to her son's hip. Later that day, Mrs. Flores received a text message from her son saying that he was with William Inman. The plot of Flores's murder thickened as it also involved 43-year-old Jeffrey Johnson, who was the father of Flores's girlfriend who had given birth to their child in 2008. Her pregnancy and relationship with Flores had caused conflicts between her family and her boyfriend. In order for William to prove that he had killed the teenage boy, he brought Flores's dead body to Johnson as the latter had offered William payment for carrying out the murder. Similar to Acton's case, Flores's body had been burned before it was buried in a shallow grave, making it William's third in a row cold secret. Remember, the best secrets are the ones that are the most twisted, and oftentimes they're too delicious not to be shared. The truth about the cold murder cases in Apache County started to unravel in late August of 2009. 
while other serial killers would go to great lengths to hiding or running away so that authorities would not be able to track them down, Inman chose to expose himself. He was at the center of it all as the whistleblower and self-confessed serial killer. During that time, William was living in Springerville with his girlfriend, 44-year-old Storm Williams. The town's police chief then was Steve West, who considered Daniel Acton and Ricky Flores as missing persons, while Stoney was a victim of a still unsolved homicide. One afternoon on August 28th, Police Chief West received a phone call from Storm saying that St. John's police and the sheriff's deputies were at her house and she and William didn't know what to do. West advised her to calm down, head over to his station and discuss the matter with him. After a while, a scruffy and anxious William with a head of curly and dirty blonde hair accompanied by Storm walked into the Springerville Town Police Station after running two and a half blocks from their home. There's people in your town, William told West, referring to police officers from neighboring St. John's who had a court order to look through his home. William thought that the police chief would be upset that cops from other areas were attacking his domain and presumed that the Springerville officer would drive them out. He thought that I would say, it's my jurisdiction, get out of my jurisdiction, but police departments don't just do that, Wes said. William had hoped that this would divert the attention from himself. However, Wes found it intriguing and saw no harm in hearing out William's concerns. So he invited him to take a seat and talk an endless talking William did for almost four hours. He kept Police Chief West interested in him with his stories about his troubled childhood and his collection of weapons. His anxiety most likely triggered William to open up about his concern. That St. John's authorities went to the home he shared with his girlfriend in light of the fact that he was included in the investigation of Ricky Flores's killing. Perhaps with skillful digging from Police Chief West, William made an unexpected confession. That he was responsible for killing Flores upon the encouragement of Jeffrey Johnson, the father of Flores' girlfriend. William initially claimed that Flores had threatened him with a firearm and he was just acting in self-defense. But he eventually conceded and broke down in tears a rare moment when he showed actual emotion, according to West. Shortly thereafter, William was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and held in prison. Almost a month later, on September 25th, Police Chief West and Apache County's attorney officer investigator Brian Hounshell interviewed William again. It was during this interview that William offered up another big surprise. He finally admitted his guilt to the separate murders of Stoney in 2007 and of Daniel Acton in March of 2009. He proclaimed himself a serial killer and said that had he not been caught, he supposedly had plans to kill two more people, including a drug dealer. 
William expressed remorse for killing Flores as they were known to be friends, but he told authorities he was proud of slaying his two other victims, whom he thought needed to be dispatched. After confessing about Acton's case, William took Hounshell to the scene of the murder, told him what had transpired, and showed him where the body was actually buried. Referring to William, investigator Hounshell said, this is an animal that needs to be caged. He needs to be incarcerated for the rest of his life. Furthermore, Apache County attorney Michael Whitling reiterated that William was a serial killer by his own admission and by criminal standards. The young triple murderer can be classified into the vigilante mold of serial killers who think that by murdering undesirable people, they are actually doing some favor to the world with their actions. Whitting added, they categorize themselves what's undesirable. Alas, William Inman faced the day of reckoning. On September 7, 2011, he was sentenced to 24 years in the Department of Corrections and was expected to serve each day of the 24 years without possibility of parole or early release. He accepted a plea agreement in which he pled guilty to three counts of first-degree murder. As part of that agreement, William offered to provide evidence on one of the murders and tell authorities where the body of Flores was in exchange for prosecutors not seeking the death penalty. The accomplices of William and the three killings he committed were not spared by the law either. In the case of Ricky Flores, Jeffrey Johnson and his wife Melissa entered into plea deals for their roles. Jeffrey pled guilty to hindering the prosecution and received seven years in prison but he was released in 2014 after serving little more than four years. Meanwhile, Melissa also pled guilty to hindering the prosecution and received probation. Prosecutors at the time said she had known about Flores' murder, but concealed that information from authorities. However, the case against William's girlfriend, Storm, was dismissed as she was considered incompetent and unrestorable to stand trial. William's accomplice in killing Stoney and Acton was identified as a man named Joseph Roberts. He was charged with first-degree murder and hindering a criminal prosecution in Stoney's case, as well as mutilating a body, tampering with evidence, and concealment of a body in the Acton case. He was finally arrested in 2012 in Spokane, Washington. main perpetrator, William Inman, and his accomplice are now paying for their despicable crimes. Roberts is serving time for second-degree murder at the Lewis Prison Facility in Buckeye, Arizona, and is scheduled for release in 2026. William is incarcerated in the Arizona Department of Corrections facility in Safford on three counts of manslaughter, and two counts of abandoning and concealing a dead body. He is scheduled for release in January of 2030. By the time of his release, William will have spent half of his life paying for the crimes he thought would make society a better place by murdering the undesirable beings.
But man is not what he thinks he is, but rather he is what he hides. And when the hidden life of William Inman as a serial killer was exposed, he was no better than the people he killed. He, as a self-confessed serial killer, was as undesirable and deplorable as his victims that society does not condone or deserve. So that's it for this week's episode of Every Town. If you're interested in hearing more creepy stories that are currently happening in our world, then make sure to check out our Scary Mysteries podcast and YouTube channel, where each week we cover topical stories in our Twisted News segment, and every month we have the strange and scary mysteries of the month, and those are all about what's happening right now all around us. Please subscribe and email us at info at newdawnfilm.com to let us know if you have any stories you'd like us to cover. And tune in next week for another episode filled with scary, strange, and mysterious stories about every town out there. And who knows, maybe your town will be next.